you to know what was so graciously given to us in the Word. And there's some things that the Bible is very clear on that it's been telling us. And if we sit with it, it'll create in us an urgency, not an anxiety. There's a difference. It'll create in us an urgency, and we need an urgency. And I want to hit that vein of urgency and just push on it a little bit. And I want the blood to flow in that direction. And I want to make this statement. Uh, I see the Lord's laying out a plan. I'm, I was feeling after it this afternoon, and I see he's laying out a plan. Sunday was very direct. I feel God led me in a certain direction, and I want to stay in that direction. But we need to understand that when God robed himself in the flesh, he came to be an advocate, a lawyer for us, if you will. When he comes back, though, he's not going to be a lawyer anymore. And we need to know that. He's coming back to be a judge. There's, there, we're in this dispensation of he's advocating for us. He's speaking on our behalf. But when he comes back that second time, he came the first time to war against sin. The second time, he's going to war against a sinner. And so we need to have this urgency of, one, I need to do everything I possibly can to make sure I'm in full alignment and then get an urgency to make sure that we are doing everything we can to reach people, bringing them into the, the kingdom so that they can escape a judgment because it's coming. And so I want to build this urgency in you by, by doing a little bit of, and I don't hate to use the word end time teaching because I feel like that's, that phrase is packed with so many misunderstandings. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach it from the biblical perspective. Is that okay? I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 1 and 2. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read quite a few scripture tonight. Feel safest quoting scripture. And I'm going to bring some of these scriptures out in the culture and the context of Judaism and what they heard and what they believe when they heard certain things. And I want to build that for you. We're going to be talking about the end of time, but I want to use the word that the Bible uses. Okay? So let's look at it. It says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly. There's clear in verse 2 that there was something they knew about. He's implying this. For yourselves you know perfectly. That the day of the Lord, everyone say the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief. And this is important. It's coming at night. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. God has assigned a church that rules darkness. That's our job. And the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. This, this teaching that I want to do tonight, I want to use the phrase the day of the Lord. When they said the day of the Lord in the Bible, they had a very specific thing in mind when they were saying that. The day of the Lord is him coming to be a warrior in that mindset. And I want to build upon that this evening. So one more time, if you just will raise your hands. I want you to open up your mind, open up your spirit. And I want you to ask the Lord, as he's imparting urgency, that you open yourself up to receive it. Not anxiety, urgency. When we get an urgency, we will reach this world. We will do it without stress. We will do it without anxiety. And we will just know, God, I'm going to reach the world and I'm going to live how I should live. Father, in the name of Jesus, I give myself over to you tonight. I am humbled and thankful that you would allow me to minister your word. I thank you for opening my spirit and opening up my mind to understand some things in your word. Thank you, God. I'm humbled that you would reveal these things to the body. Help me tonight to communicate it, Lord, to impart into this room a sense of urgency and a sense of holiness upon us, God, because we know that a day is coming when you're coming to war. Lord, I want to be a part of 
of the war. I don't want a war against you. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, you help me tonight to deliver your word with authority and with clarity. In the precious name of Jesus, whatever you do tonight, I trust it. And, Father, I give you glory for it. In Jesus' name. Everyone give the Lord a hand clap. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Praise God. You can be seated. Really quickly, if you can put up on the slide for me, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. I just want to continue building upon this phrase, the day of the Lord. You're going to notice that once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it when you go through your Bible study time. Listen to what Peter would say to a Gentile church in 2 Peter 3, 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And where, we, where have we heard this already? So we've got Paul and Peter preaching the same message as we should expect from people hearing from one God. Amen. Amen. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgments. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. You see what he's doing here. He's preparing a bride. This is the work of ministry. Verse 12, looking forward to, well, wait a minute. If God's coming back to war, why would we look forward to that? Because we're on the right side of the war. Why? Because of verse 11, what holy and godly lives we've been living. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to repent. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Every time you see this phrase, the day of the Lord, in your Bible, every time it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's in reference to Jesus' return, his coming back. It's his second coming. But where does this phrase, the day of the Lord, come from? There's clearly a history that the Bible is building off of in the New Testament. These guys had information about this phrase that they're pulling from because they didn't have Netflix, they didn't have YouTube, they didn't have any of this stuff. Their media was Bible. So everything that they're teaching from is from the catalog of what they binged on, and that was Scripture. So they're very biblically, uh, they have very biblical speech. And so the day of the Lord was not something new to the New Testament. This is something that they had been raised on as young Jewish boys. The only way to look forward in prophecy is we, we merely just need to look backwards in our Old Testament. You can read through the prophets and you will notice something. It looks a whole lot like today. You can read through the prophets and you can see that. And so if you want to see forward, just look back. Human nature just keeps doing the same thing. Amen? So... Let's go, let's go all the way back, and I, was, I want to build this, this theology for you tonight. So let's go all the way back, like Genesis, all the way back. So man was most in God's will when he was in the garden in Genesis. And the garden mindset is what we're striving to get back to as images of God filled with his spirit, walking with him, bearing fruit, having dominion. 
over the animal, which is our flesh in the New Testament. This is what we're trying to get back to, okay? If you're doing these things, you're on your way to living the Edenic lifestyle. Adam and Eve rebelled. They were evicted, and access to the garden was denied. A simple sin of rebellion. This is important. Rebellion is a big word that we need to bring a revival of because the Bible is full of this word. So the simple sin of rebellion had a ripple effect, cascading to a wave smashing against Cain, who killed his own brother, thus more rebellion. So God punishes Cain by cursing him, sending him away to live as a fugitive, and we're beginning to see something emerging here. Our world is filled with rebellion. When Cain complained about the severity of the punishment of God, you know, punishing him as he did, God marked Cain and promised that anyone who harmed him would receive punishment sevenfold. And as the world gets more rebellious, Cain would have a great, 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 great grandson named Lamech. That's an interesting name in Hebrew because Lamech is the Hebrew word Melech, which is king spelled backwards. So he had a great, 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 great grandson who was an inverted king. And this inverted king said, well, God avenged my, my, my great, great grandfather for killing somebody. And he marked him and protect him. And so I can kill whoever I want to. And God will protect me 70 times sevenfold. And so they're taking a voice of God and they're warping it in this society of the Bible that was all rooted in rebellion. We're seeing this. We're seeing this. I I literally saw somebody uh, on the news. They were saying uh, that everybody needs to get vaccinated. They're, They're like the disciples. You need to go out and you need to preach the gospel of the vaccination is literally what this person said. They're taking Bible and they're, they're twisting it and they're warping it to fit an agenda. And this is what's happening here in this society. And this is what I want to keep honing in on is this was a society of rebellion. This was a society of warping the word of God. Okay. And so he warps the word of God and he's like, well, God's going to avenge me 70 times sevenfold. He had no idea that later on the king of kings would come and say, forgive your brother 70 times sevenfold. That's what the rightful king says. The inverted king says, do whatever you want to and you'll be forgiven. You can abuse grace. Anyway. From there we see the ripple effect of sin spreading out even further as Cain settled in the land of Nod. And eventually he had children in Genesis 4, 16 through 18 who continued this trend of rebellion. So Lamech, son of Methushael, was Cain's great-great-great-grandson, as we mentioned. He has murderous ways. He's warping, distorting grace. He took the grace of God and said, I can do whatever I want to and get more grace. He marries two wives. This first time the Bible's mentioned polygamy, and it just it starts getting worse and worse until God says the thoughts of man are evil continually. It's just this is a rebellious society. And it continues till it boils to that head in Genesis 6:5. And God saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Then the ever popular story of Noah finding favor in the eyes of God takes place, which is called, by the way, the day of the Lord in Matthew 24. When they ask Jesus about what's the end times going to look like, he goes back and he says, just go back to the days of Noah where they were abusing grace. They were doing whatever they wanted to do and they were doing it all and twisting my scriptures to, to, to feel good about it. It's going to be like that when the, sun, when the day of the Lord comes. So these are the words of Jesus. You can expect a total lawless society who distorts scripture and takes advantage of grace. This is a society that you can look to and be looking for when the day of the Lord comes. 
So remember, we're, we're going to hit some mountaintops. I'm not going to go down in the valley and show the types and shadows. I'm just going to hit the mountaintops trying to show you the day of the Lord throughout biblical history. So from the days of Noah, you know the story, flood, all that. God has his way. We get to a story of a place called Babel. Right after the water recedes, Noah and his family leave the ark. God marks the sky with a promise to never flood the earth again. He does this. He always gives a covenant with a sign. This is everywhere in the Bible. He, he doesn't just tell somebody about the covenant. He shows somebody a covenant. There's something always visible or audible that accompanies a covenant. They then begin to repopulate the earth. And what happens next is absolutely pivotal to understanding the 15 books of the prophets. If you don't understand this fundamental part right here... The prophets are just going to go right over your head, and you're going to miss the whole point of the prophets, and you're not going to know what prophets are called to do today, okay? So let's look at Genesis 11, verse 2. It says, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. That's an important phrase because we're going to see that show up again. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Here's a society, technologically advanced, that is doing whatever they want to do and they're building a tower to make their name great. This is, this is very important. So the prophets refer to Babylon often in reference to the day of the Lord. They use this story right here as an image of what brings about the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord just means it's the day that God warred. That's what that means. He came to war against. And they're always, the prophets always bring up Babylon when they talk about the day of the Lord. And so we need to take time and we need to analyze what's up with Babylon and why is it so important to the prophets. So in order to understand what they're referring to, we need to know where Babylon originated. So we see that Babylon is a highly technologically advanced people there, which is evidenced by verse 3. No longer were they just stacking rocks up like, you know, primal men. They have, they have a, a science. They have a building program. They're making, they're making bricks. This is, this is a new technology, and they, it's evidently gone to their head that they have this technology. They must feel like gods because of this technology. So they said, you know what? We have this technology. Let's be like God. Let's build us a tower, and let's go up there because in the ancient world... If you could ascend on high, then you could be, you can make your own Eden mountain. They're making their own religion is what they're doing. In fact, history, this is true history. Polytheism traces back to Babylon. Multiple deities goes all the way back to Babylon. This is where it originated in our history. Okay? And this was a society that God didn't approve of. So we can just, we can just clear some things up right there. If God loved Babylon, then he would have been okay with the polytheism they were teaching. But something made him unsettled, okay? So the city was built by Noah's great-grandson, Nimrud. It's important to understand that Nimrud built, uh, or he was a bit better to get the context of what's going on in his life. Uh, We need to understand him a little bit more because he's the builder of this city, okay? So let's look at him in Genesis 10, verse 8. Let's just look at the builder of this highly technologically advanced city. So verse 8, it says, Cush fathered Nimrud. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrud, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Everyone look at that word before. That's important in Hebrew. 
Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, Kaneh, in the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Assyria. He built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh, Kalah. That is the great city. You, if you've read your Bible before, which I know your pastor, many of you, hopefully you've been reading your Bibles because I know your pastor's passion. Those cities that I just named, have any of those cities <laughs> done anything good throughout the Bible? No. No, every city that I just mentioned that this man built caused nothing but problems in the Bible. Right? And this man, Nimrud, was the builder of those cities. So let me use this this word here. He was kind of a floor plan, if you will, uh, a foreshadow of what an Antichrist would look like. A rebellious man. And so I told you to pay attention to that word before. That Hebrew word before doesn't mean a whole lot to us in English. It just means, it almost sounds good, like he, he sat before the Lord. That's a good thing, right? No, it's the Hebrew word panaim, and it has a variety of applications, but its root, which is pene, it means to face. That is not a good thing. And I'll, I'll use an English phrase that will help you understand a little bit better what that Hebrew phrase means. Have you ever seen somebody who digs their heels in? Have you ever heard that statement before? They're just digging their heels in. You say, hey, I would really like for you, you tell your kids, I would really like for you to take out the trash. That's what the father asks of you. And your, your child looks at you, and he, Hebrew, he would look at you and he would perform a penne. He would dig his heels in and say, absolutely not. And the father would be like, um, no, <laughs> I'm the father. I just told you to do this, do it. And that child would look at you saying, I'm not doing anything you say. What would you call that? Rebellion. You would call that rebellion. And this is what Nimrud does. He faced the Lord. He dug his heels in. And he says, I don't, I don't care what you say. I, don't, I really don't. I'm not concerned that our entire theology says you're one. We're, in this city, we're going to teach more. In this city, I know your name is great. But in this city, we're going to make ours great. We're going to build us a tower. We're going to make ourselves a name. We're technologically advanced. We're not these primal men that Lamech used to be. We're more advanced than we're smarter than they are. Just build the context. This city was built by a man. And here's the cool thing. Nimrud is the Hebrew word rebellion. Here's a city built by a man named Rebellion who faced the Lord. There are historians, as I said, and theologians that agree that Babylon is where all of the polytheistic ideas that Egypt had, that Greece had, all of that originated right here from a man named Rebellion. Verse 4 said they wanted to make a name for themselves, and the word name derives from the Hebrew word shim, and its meaning is fame or glory. Have we ever seen a society that's obsessed with fame and glory? I mean, I, I really can't recall in the 35 years I've been on this planet any generation that's been more obsessed with it than right now. And the avenue to get there quicker has become social media. Okay, so I just I want to just build this for you. And this isn't me just picking on certain things. I'm just sitting by and I'm looking at my Bible and then I'm putting as an overlay over the society I'm living in. And I'm discerning based off of what I've already seen as fact. 
This is, it's just, I mean, I hate to, I hate to be, I hate to say this, but it is, it is as simple as that. Okay. They wanted to have fame and glory. And what's interesting is this story literally segues right into God calling Abram out of that society. I mean, just a few verses later, he goes to him and he's, these, there were cities that were all connected to Babylon. That was basically, call it the capital. And an offshoot was Haran. There was Ur, all these other places. And God goes in and he says, you can't live here. Come out into a country that I will show thee and I will make your name great. And what does Abram build? He doesn't build a tower. He builds an altar. And he makes God's name great. And God says, if you make my name great, you're made in my image. I'll share, I will, I will not share this glory, but I will partner with you. I'm going to partner and do this with you. Don't forget, though, it's my name. Okay? So the biblical authors are trying to show us that when we pridefully try to get a name for ourselves, then the day of the Lord always shows up because God showed up. And what did he do at Babylon? He warred against it. He dismantled their society. But God always will have a people that he calls out to be separate from the society that he's about to war against. Okay, so God shows up, confounds the rebellious and prideful inhabitants of Babylon, and it becomes a byproduct. It becomes an image of how the prophets will tell a story later on in the future. All they have to do is say, you've become like Babylon, and the recipients would know, I must be full of pride. I must be wanting to make a name for myself. I must be dabbling in a false theology. So God makes a promise to Abraham that he will make a great nation out of him. He marks him with circumcision. Because this is what God does. He marks. He performs a covenant, and there's a sign with it, circumcision. And just like the promise made to Noah with a rainbow, God promises always have a mark, something tangible. So when Jesus promised to send a comforter, he sent a tongue. The church in Acts was supposed to be an anti-Babylon. Okay? You starting to see these, these images here? We're not like Babylon They were sent away with a tongue. We've been united by a tongue. We're the inverted Babylon. We're we're a part of the city which was made by God. So from there we get Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a city full of disobedience, rebellion, pride, utter lawlessness. I'm just going to hit these mountaintops. Think of it like this. When you read about Sodom and Gomorrah, think of Babylon 2.0. Let's do it this way. The spirit of Babylon... Hiding behind a new name. A new city. It's a new city, same spirit. There has nobody come yet to come and defeat that spirit. So that spirit is running rampant. So humans were ignorant and the spirit just came and starts manipulating. And notice that while there is a city of Babylon, me and Brother Jared talked about this today, there was an oddball over here not participating in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was an Abraham who said, I'm going to make your name great. That's what I've been called to do. I, don't, I can't leave a city and move into another one, even though it looks a little different than the last one. The spirit doesn't feel right there. We need to discern in this hour because Abraham, Abraham had to do it. He was discerning. He said, oh, it's not called Babylon. It must be okay. No, 
He looked at it and he said, that has the same spirit as Babylon. I don't care if it has a different name. It doesn't feel right. Now, this didn't make him hate Babylon because then he intercedes for it. That's the test right there. Can you live separate from what doesn't feel right and still pray for it? Can you intercede for what you don't agree with while not dabbling in it? You have no authority with the God who's about to war against it unless you love it the way the God does. And so he says, the only way I can have authority to pray over the city is I can't participate with the city. Because you notice, Lot had no authority with God. Because he settled in. And so the day of the Lord shows up and dismantles Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Luke 17, verse 28. It says, likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot... They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. Basically, they had no concern about God whatsoever. They had no concern about their neighbors. Just life as usual. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You see what's happening here? Are you starting to see a trend? Lawlessness always precedes the day of the Lord. A desire for fame and glory is always what we should expect before we see the day of the Lord. Taking advantage of humans that were made in the image of God is always what's taking place before the day of the Lord. Absolute carelessness about the day of the Lord is what you can expect. Just doing life as normal, not concerned about any eternal impact, just I got to I got to get to this appointment, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to just I got to get married, you know, We have to discern this hour by looking back, okay? From Sodom and Gomorrah, we get Egypt. Think of Egypt as Babel 3.0 or the same spirit with a new name. So this is where I want to just start building it because this is where the day of the Lord gets introduced to us in the story of Egypt. So from Abraham comes Isaac, Isaac comes Jacob, who's called by Israel by God when he wrestled with the angel. God makes a covenant to Jacob. He marks him with a limp. He touches him. And notice what happens, though. When God changed Jacob's name, I'm going to segue here for a minute because I I keep wanting to build on this. When Jacob was touched by the angel, this is what he did. Jacob's not a name in Hebrew. It's a word. It's Yahov. It means deceiver. God looked at him and he said, who are you? God knew who he was. But he said, who are you? And this is what he did. He humbled himself and he said, I am Yaakov. I'm a deceiver. And he said, good, confession will lead to healing. I'm going to rename you Yisrael, prince with God, is what I'll call you. And so what does God do? He touches him and he'll never walk the same now. And the very next verse is the one that people don't talk about. We like to talk about the name change and the walk change, but there's something else that happens. When he touches him, he says, there's somebody who writes a little addendum in there, and it says, and to this day, we don't eat the sinew from the thigh of the lamb because of this. There's something we'll never do again. There's a separation now. We don't just believe in the name change and a walk change. We believe in something we'll never go back to. And so to remember this and to memorialize our separation, let's eat different. Let's change the diet up. So that's just line you up. Lanyap, I'm not in Louisiana. Lanyap means a little extra in Cajun. So we get this. God makes a covenant. He marks him. He gives him separation, so on and so forth. Also notice, by the way, I just, I'm going to stay on that for a second. 
because this just hit me. God didn't tell Jacob not to eat the sinew from the thigh. Jacob made that decision. I'm going to be proactive in separating myself. So, let's move on. Then because of a famine, Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt, and you all know the story in Exodus. There rose up a king who knew not Joseph. Nimrod 2.0. This is a, an antichrist of sorts. He digs his heels in. He says, I don't care how many plagues you send me. I'm not moving. My mind is made up. Dabbling in polytheism. So let's look at Exodus 1 verse 9. He said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we, an insecurity of someone greater than them. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Pause right there. That word uh, is the same Hebrew word that was used for the serpent in the garden. Let us deal wisely with them. And that's the same word that was used by the Pharisees in the New Testament. As they dealt shrewdly with Jesus. It's, it's important that we see all this. You can be cloaked in the clothes of religiosity. And still be participating with the spirit of an antichrist. So let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. So get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. They had them making bricks. They dealt with them with hard brick and mortar. Well, where did we read this before? That's exactly what was going on in Babel. It's important to know that there's only 1,894 total Hebrew words. They take the same words and they use them to tell new stories. And when they drop these words in, they're, they're, the authors are winking at us and saying, Hey, guys, you see what's happening here? This is the new Bible under the name of Egypt. Different, different president, same spirit. You should be discerning this is what the author is saying. Because they always abuse what's made in God's image in this lawless society. They always do what they want to. They always defy the Lord. This is just what they do. They always try to kill babies. That's what they do in lawless societies. And then they try to advocate why it's a good thing to do it. If this would be a good thing, guys. If we kill all these babies, then they won't war against us. And the people are like, that's, you know, that's really smart, actually. That's a great idea. And they justify what is inhumane. So, verse 12. But the more they afflicted them... This is good news for the church. The more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. This is the new Babel. So this whole story is packed with phrases from the story of Babylon. There are three specific places in the Old Testament that talk about cities being built with brick and mortar. Babylon in Genesis 11 Egypt right here, and Solomon's house. We're going to talk about Solomon's house here in a moment. There is a really common narrative technique of the biblical authors. When they want you to see a connection, they'll use those same Hebrew words. And that's what we're seeing take place. This is how Hebrew literature works. Okay, This is one of the things they've been teaching me uh, in, in college is Jews use these words to draw connections for you. They want you to see these connections. They were hyper aware and discerning of it. Moses was super aware. He's like, oh, this is Babel. People can't, our people can't live here. God is calling them out of Babel 3.0. How did he get them out? It's really cool if you look at a map, by the way. 
they could have went around the Red Sea. I think they were maybe a mile and a half on the map of going around it. But God said this. He said, if they go around, if they take the king's highway, they'll be running for the rest of their life. The only way I can stop the Antichrist spirit is if they go through the water. Their past will never be able to follow them so long as they go through water. Don't go around the water. Go through the water. Don't ignore the water. And Paul really builds a strong theology on all of this of baptism. Don't go around it. Go through it. Okay. So the narrators are telling us, hey, guys, they're winking at us. Do you see what's happening here? Egypt is the new Babylon. The same self-exaltation that was in Babylon is present here in Egypt. But this time there is extreme violence. The, The violence has been amped up in Egypt. That spirit unchecked just gets worse. That's important. Watch the lawlessness that unfolds. It becomes the right thing to do in the eyes of the Egyptians to kill babies. The first time in Egypt's history they begin to mistreat immigrants. They didn't do this in the past. Pharaoh back in the day was pretty good. He lets Abraham go. Another Pharaoh let Isaac and his wife go. They were God-fearing. God even gave them dreams. Pharaoh wasn't so bad. Something happened in that society. And that's what we need to, this, this is the, we need to be careful with this really quick. If we just look at history and say, well, Egypt wasn't always bad. Egypt can't be that bad. There was a Pharaoh. And I've heard Christians say this about America. This is where I want you to just be discerning. But America used to be, that's the key word though, used to be. Egypt used to be really good. But there came up a Pharaoh who didn't care anymore and dug his heels in. And now they're saying, okay, we're going to have to take a step back here. Maybe we don't need to participate in Egypt. Maybe now it's time to leave. They've been good up until this point, but now the spirit I'm feeling, this isn't, there's something not right with the spirit. Now we need to leave. Now let's walk out of here. And God delivers them. Complete disregard to the true God, unlike the former Pharaoh of Abraham's day, who feared God tremendously. And much like Babylon, Egypt was trying to be godlike. So God being the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's not changing. He calls Moses out to be set apart. Moses rolls up in Egypt, confronts Pharaoh with his famous line in Exodus 5, let my people go, to which Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord? that I should let the people go. I don't know your God. He's digging his heels in just like Nimrod. Same spirits on Pharaoh and he doesn't even know it. This should burden us, by the way. We shouldn't be getting mad at Pharaoh. We should be burdened for Pharaoh if we have the spirit on us that was on Abraham. And honestly, if we had the spirit that was on Moses where he went up and he's like, I imagine in the mind of of Moses who spent time with God, he's going to Pharaoh and he's thinking to himself, please, just repent. After this plague? No? Okay, God, what are you going to do? Another opportunity to repent? Okay, plague two. Okay, God, what are you going to do? Another opportunity to repent? Okay, plague three. God gives Pharaoh ten opportunities to repent. And he just doesn't doesn't do it. And I don't believe that God was gloating when Pharaoh went into that sea. I believe God wept because that was his image dying. But God was justified in doing that as a judge because God will always be a judge. He was justified that time because he gave Pharaoh 10 opportunities. So can we do like Moses and go and intercede? Or do we just look at him and say, Antichrist, nothing to do with you? No, we can live set apart and still preach to Pharaoh. 
So from there, we know the story. God sends the ten plagues. They got up. They got ten wake-up calls. They didn't listen. It's a really merciful God, which ties in with 2 Peter 3, So, which is what we read at the beginning of the lesson. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to repent, is what Peter said. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. So the final plague comes as the death angel passes over all the houses with the blood. Right here, the story comes to a screeching halt in Exodus 12, and God tells them to memorialize this as the day. When they were on the other side of the Red Sea, God tells them, he says, I want you to remember this as the day. And this is where Jewish history gets the day of the Lord. It was the day that God came and warred against a lawless society on behalf of his people that were separate. That's what the history of the day of the Lord is. So when the New Testament authors are pointing to the great day of the Lord, do you know what they're saying? There's coming a day when God is going to war against a lawless society and he's going to redeem the people that were set apart and that were still like Moses going and preaching to the lawless society. We have to have a good, strong grip on both. If we're just separate to go live in a wilderness and never preach to Pharaoh, we're missing half of the the message here. If we're saying, okay, I need to relate to Pharaoh by living in Egypt, you're missing half the message. You need to be separate unto God and preach unto Pharaoh. And through that, God says, okay, thank you, Moses. You're making sure that I'll be justified when Pharaoh stands before me on judgment day. When he says, nobody told me, I can say I sent somebody that was made in my image that loved me and you to preach this to you. That's what's going on here. And so they wrote a song of it in Jewish history called The Day of the Lord. It's in their Hebrew literature. Passover is literally for Jewish people to remember the day the Lord fought on their behalf. Which brings me to, really quickly, I want to go through this. This brings us to the prophetic teaching. If we don't understand this, we're going to miss what the prophets are doing in 2021 and going forward. Because here's what God's been showing me. God has been letting his prophets out. He's been unleashing them in the past year. He's been preparing them for a long time. And they've been the weirdos out in, in the silent places trying to separate themselves. And now God is saying, okay, now you can preach unto a lawless society. In fact, it was about five years ago, God gave me a vision of a cave full of prophets. And God told me, he said, I'm going to let them out in there. And before I did any of this studying, I didn't even know this was in the Bible at that point. And God told me, he said, these prophets are going to speak to presidents, governors, and yes, even pastors. Because there are pastors that are participating in Pharaoh-like tendencies and don't even know it. There are churches, there are saints that are listening to those, those voices and don't even realize it. And we have to have a love that comes over us that says, I want you to be on the right side of the war. When he comes in wars, I want him to war. I want us to be behind him as he's on that great white horse. He's got arrows on his back, or he's got a, a, a quiver on his back with no arrows because he, he won't even have to fire a shot. God's already victorious. And I want to be riding on that side. I don't want to be on the receiving end. I want to be on the marching end. So we need to prepare people. So let's look at this. Let's look at Solomon because that's, that's where that dealt with him with hard brick and mortar shows up again. So all Israel has to do is not become like the nations around them. That's all they have to do. That is literally their entire mission statement. Love the Lord our God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength. 
He's, he's one God beside him. There's nobody else. Love him and him only. Don't love the polytheistic gods that's been introduced because of Babel. This anti-Christ spirit that's around us, don't participate in that. Just be separate. In fact, you can read the, the prayer of Solomon when he's dedicating the temple. God's like, this is great, Solomon. Thank you. And thank you for, I didn't ask for this house, but thank you for building it. I will be with you if you just adhere to my commands. I will always show up, but if you don't, I'll spew you out of this land the same way I did all the ones before you because I'm not partial. I'm looking for those that love me and that will stay separate. So we need to understand that because even though Israel was God's chosen people, if the spirit of Babel got on them, chosen or not, he's going to give them the boot. We need to know this nature of God. God is loving, but God is righteous. He is just. He shows no partiality. You're either with him or you're not. So we need to discern ourselves. So all they had to do was obey the commands, live it, love God. They have a tabernacle. They have the presence of God that fights for them. They have 613 laws. They are set apart. They're different than every other nation. They're representing the God they serve. They even have a promised land. What could go wrong? If you've read 1st, 2nd Kings, you know exactly what can go wrong. If you've read Judges, you know exactly what can go wrong. So let's, let's pick up this. Let's look at David's son, Solomon. Let's not even don't have time to even talk about David. But let's look at this. So 1st Kings chapters 1 through 11, we're not going to read it. It shows us the life of Solomon as king. And in the beginning of his kingship, we see this classic scene of King David uh, on his deathbed. And he charges his son, tells him, he says, Solomon, follow the commands of the Torah. Be faithful. David passes away. Solomon has a dream. God tells him, you know, he has one thing. What do you want from me? He says, I want to be able to discern between good and evil. Uh, I'm going to give you a servant heart that listens and can discern between good and evil to rule the people. He wants to rule under God's authority, which is obviously noble. Israel as a kingdom is doing pretty good right here under the leadership of King Solomon. And so God being impressed with Solomon's request gives him wisdom and then gives him what he didn't ask for, which was wealth. This wealth given to him by God would be his greatest test, though. And we need to follow this this narrative. Solomon is clearly finding favor with God. But his wealth, unchecked, would be a problem. From here, we see Solomon is depicted as an empire builder. Well, who does that sound like? Who's built empires in the past? The Bible says he makes gold as common as dust. However, the author of 1 Kings starts to reveal to us some character flaws with Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 5 shows Solomon drafting forced laborers, literally slave labor, which was not in the Torah. You respect even the immigrants amongst you. And so you're reading this and you're like, oh no, Solomon, what are you doing? You had it all, man. You, you, you had understanding. God had revel- you had revelation. Revelation means nothing without obedience. Okay? It means nothing without obedience. So he begins to deal with God's people, the Israelites, with hard brick and mortar. The same Hebrew words that were used in Exodus, the same Hebrew words that were used in Genesis. It's beginning to look familiar. The ancient author's winking at us again, and they're saying, ah, even the chosen people can fall trap to this Antichrist spirit. Babel is out of control. He builds a kingdom, but he's doing it the same way as Pharaoh in Exodus. 
Watch this, 1 Kings 6.38. The entire building was completed in every detail by mid-autumn in the month of Bul, during the 11th year of his reign. So it took seven years to build the temple. With tens of thousands of laborers, he spent seven years building the temple. Two chapters dedicated to this temple, which is great, right? That's really awesome. You're building God a house. Wonderful. It was 2,700 square feet. It was extravagant. It was way better than the tent. It's something more established. It's brick and mortar. However, literally the next verse, the author shows us this. Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him 13 years to complete its construction. He builds double the size of his home. He's got a revelation, but his character's not checked. He has no obedience, and the wealth is starting to destroy him. Two houses are in view here, and an empathetic contrast is being made between them. Solomon spent nearly double the time he spent on his house versus God's house showing him where his heart and allegiance truly lie. He's making himself famous. He's after fame and glory. Solomon's house appears to have been built according to the plans of a Neo-Hittite palace type called Bit Hilani. Uh, The type of palace could be found in northern Syria. The point is, Solomon modeled his house like the world around him. We know this in history, church that Solomon looked at the world's houses and said, oh, that's nice. Let's build a house like that one. Let me me just say this, and it'll be very controversial, but whatever. (laughs) Church growth. Let me just use those words. Church growth. Oh, man, look how they're building their churches. That looks, let's, let's try that here. Are you discerning the hour we're in? Solomon marries a daughter of the kings of Egypt, which, according to Deuteronomy, you weren't supposed to do. You're never supposed to go back to Egypt. So the king of Egypt pays the bride price of killing all the Canaanites of Gezer in 1 Kings 9.16. So now Solomon is doing a political marriage with a nation you were never supposed to go back to, and he's killing people to make that covenant with them. He's making covenant with Egypt and losing covenant with God. Okay, The bride price was the lives of thousands. Chapter 10 shows us his annual import of gold per year was 666 talents. You can't miss this stuff when you spend time in the Bible. One talent was approximately 58, 78 pounds of gold, so 12 tons of gold a year is what he's bringing in. 500 ornamental gold shields to hang in his palace, huge ivory throne inlaid with gold, First uh, Kings 10 says that no other throne in the world could compare to it. Every step leading to his throne had a carved lion for a total of 12 carved lions. A fleet of trading ships that returned every year, every three years, full of ivory, gold, exotic animals. He had 1,400 chariots that are drawn by specially imported horses from Egypt. 12,000 horses total, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Why is the author telling us all this? Why does this matter? It matters because Deuteronomy 17:14 should be in view. This is what Moses told them. He said, when you go into the land, you're going to want a king. You don't need one, but you're going to, be, you're going to look at the world, and you're going to want to be like it. If you get a king, this should be what the king should do. This is what it says. You should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. This is what you're going to want to do. If this happens, be sure to select a king as the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. 
or send his people to Egypt to buy the horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Verse 17, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself. This is crucial right here. Please listen to this part. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy himself, for himself this body of instruction, the Bible, on a scroll in the presence of a preacher. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. The king is supposed to be a studious Bible aficionado. If, you, if you're a nation of kings and priests, what did, you ever, what did you expect? What did we expect that God would require of us? Why? Because if you study this thing day and night, you can discern the time. You can look and say, that feels a lot like Babylon. I'm not going to participate in that. That, feels, that doesn't feel right. I'm going to just separate myself from even America if I have to. Even if that means I don't vote. Because nothing feels right anymore. You can feel the resistance there. I hope that this is offensive because the Bible is offensive. But blessed are we if we're not offended. Have you felt uneasy the past two, two, three years, five years? And have we been trying to vote in a solution that the church was always supposed to be? We're wanting, we're wanting presidents and governors to do things that we're supposed to be doing. We don't. I'm not asking a president what he's going to do about social injustice. That's my job. I'm, he, hadn't have, he doesn't have a clue what to do because he's not sitting with this day and night. I know exactly what you're supposed to do to deal with social injustice. I'm not asking him what he's going to do about it. I'm going to go and do what's supposed to be done about it. I don't care what they vote in. I'm still going to do it. Regular reading will prevent him, watch this, verse 20. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. You want to be a king. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. So it matters, even the small things matter. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. You want to be a flash in the pan? Quit reading the Bible. You want to have longevity in heaven, not on earth. It may, you may, you know, things may not matter here, but you want God to stand up and applause you? Do what the Bible says. By studying the Bible and applying it, it will prevent the king of becoming like Babylon. You see what's happening here? Moses was so wise, prophetic shepherd. He says, if you follow this, God laid it out for us. We won't become like Babylon. They take advantage of fellow citizens. If you read this, you'll be humble and you won't do that. They were trying to make a name for themselves. If you read this, you won't accumulate much gold. Lamech marries multiple wives. If you read this, you won't. You you see what's literally... The Bible was designed to make us not become like Babylon. That was its purpose. And it... They were convinced that if you studied it, you would be on the right side of things. So when God comes to war, because he always does, he's going to war against the society. When he does that, I'll be like Noah. 
I'll be like Abraham. I will have been following his book and I've been discerning my hour. We're in this hour, church. And it's amping up. We're in a place far worse, far, far worse than Exodus. Egypt was just, Egypt was a walk in the park compared to what we're dealing with. You know how many babies that, I mean, there was about 2 million Israelites. They killed probably around, some theologians believe, around 100,000 babies. We have far surpassed that. Multiple wives, check. People trying to make a name for themselves, social media, check. It's not just Pharaoh anymore. It's an entire nation of people. We are, we are Babel on steroids today. And we are just, we're just kind of buying into it, hook, line, and sinker. We're looking at other people's altars and saying, how can I put that in my home? Never considering if that was a Babylonian altar or not. Movies are doing it. And we're participating with Babel spirits, opening up ourselves to them. Spirits of Babel all in Hollywood. The question is not, you know, it's not what law did Solomon break. It's which one didn't he break. Solomon broke all of these laws. Clearly, he wasn't reading his Bible. Clearly. Because, I mean, that's, that's like cut and dry, isn't it? Don't have too many wives. Solomon couldn't have been reading his Bible because he's like, well, I have about, you know, I have a thousand of them. I think that'd be all right. 700 wives, three and a concubines. Clearly, he wasn't in his book. And so <laughs> he didn't have, he only had five books. We got 66. <laughs> And it's funny, but Adam and Eve only had a word. Humans have proven that we struggle with God's word. And this has been burdening me. It's been burdening me. We need to sit with this. We need to to fall in love with him and to also, God, I want to read this because I want to please you. I don't want to be what you're coming to war against. I want to be in your image. So I want to move on. I want to get to the prophets. 2 Kings 17. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways. That's foolish right there. Evil means foolishness. And keep my commandments and my statutes. I've given you things so that you don't turn into Babel. According to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you, sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Now that the prideful, self-exalted spirit of Babylon has gotten into God's chosen people, we then move on to these prophets. I'm personally passionate about teaching on the prophets because I'm so thankful that God gives us voices that don't care about how we feel. They, they care about how we feel, but they look at us and say, you know what, I, I want to take you out of this. I, I'm not saying this for you to like me. I'm saying this because I love you so much, the same way Moses loved Pharaoh. I love you, so I'll just tell you what you need to hear because I've been reading the Bible. I'm personally very passionate about this. So I feel like they're taught in a very one-dimensional way in the world today and in the church. So if I were to ask you what a prophet was, you would probably tell me they take up an offering at camp meeting. (laughs) Or you would say they speak the future. They point to the future because they're looking at the past and they're analyzing the present. 
And they're saying, I've seen this all before. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. You're acting just like Babel. So, yes, I can point to the future because this is what happened to Babel. This is what happened to Sodom. This is what happened to Egypt. You're doing the same things they were doing, so let me tell you your future. I love my little, my little Hispanic grandmother. She said this one time. There was a lady in New Orleans who tried to tell her her future. She was a tarot card reader. And my little apostolic grandmother, she's all a four foot eight. She was walking powerful woman of God, man. She was, she was as stout as an acre of mowed garlic. And so this, this tarot card reader comes up to her and she says, ma'am, can I tell you your future? And my grandmother looked up at her and she said, no, but I can tell you yours. <laughs> and my little four foot eight grandmother looked at her and said, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. <laughs> Just fun, just to ease the moment here before we talk about the prophets. A prophet was someone who was extremely knowledgeable of the Bible and was anointed by God to speak forth to the people. In fact, prophecy means to speak forth. Not worried about, and a false prophet in Jewish culture means somebody who was paid to say what they wanted to hear, by the way. I'll say that one more time. A false prophet in Jewish culture was somebody who received payment to tell the payer what they wanted to hear. That's what a false prophet is. Not somebody who misses a prophecy. You, you can't judge a prophecy. If, if we did that, how in the world? You can judge it, but if you've you got to be a prophet to judge it. You better know the spirit of the prophets. Isaiah's prophecies didn't come to pass until almost 700 years. If that's the case, then Isaiah was a false prophet for 700 years. No, a false prophet was somebody who was paid to tell the recipient what they wanted to hear. I'm just going to drop this TV evangelist. His primary calling was to speak straight to people and bring them to repentance. The most common title to the prophet in the Old Testament was man of God. A priest was someone who would carry the voice and needs of the people to God. The priest would go to God and he would bring what the people were saying to God. And the prophet would go to God and bring what God was saying to the people. Okay? That's, that's the role in the Old Testament. So we see the first chronological prophet is Jonah. But he has a message of repentance for Nineveh, the Gentiles. He, loved, he should have loved the Gentiles. After him, we see Amos with a message from God for Israel. Amos is a good old country boy who's a fig farmer. He's not the son of a prophet. He was not anointed by anyone to prophesy. He wasn't raised in a house of prophets. He didn't go to Bible college. He wasn't a, a, a scholar. He was just a fig farmer. And God just speaks to him one day and says, I want you to go prophesy. I want you to speak forth to Israel. Bear in mind, Amos is really familiar with the Torah and really passionate about the law and Israel living those laws. And at this point, Israel is enjoying peace, prosperity, but those blessings have caused Israel to become a selfish and materialistic society. We know this because we are now past the days of Hophni and Phinehas, who were worthless men, who were doing terrible things. The priesthood is corrupt now. It's one thing when the people are corrupt, but when the priests get corrupt, God's tolerance drops to zero in the Bible. God, God has zero tolerance for the priesthood participating in Babel. So those that were well off uh, ignored the needs of the less fortunate, and this angered God immensely because he had a law. He said, never mistreat the foreigners because you too were once a foreigner. So the heartbeat of God throughout the Old Testament was towards the quartet of the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, the poor. 
He said, these are, these are people made in my image. Show no partiality. That's in the book of James, by the way. Pure religion, undefiled before God. That's unstained from the world. James was clearly reading all of this. And he says, and to care for widows. He's, he's, James is doing the work of a prophet right there. So Amos rolls up into the palace. He begins calling out their sins. And he says, the day of the Lord is coming. And imagine you're the priest and you've been singing the song. You've been singing it on Shabbat because they would sing the day of the Lord. The Lord is our warrior. And so Amos comes in. He says, the day of the Lord's coming. And they're like, sweet, the day of the Lord's coming. He's going to war for us. And Amos is like, no, no. Your Bible now. The day of the Lord is coming against who used to be chosen people. Amos 5, verse 18. Watch all this. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here? You have no idea what you're wishing for, he says. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. Basically he's saying, you can't escape this. There's nothing you can do. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. I hate all your shows and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals. I will not accept your burnt offerings, your grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice an endless river of righteous living. Was it me you were bringing sacrifice and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness in Israel? No, you served your pagan gods. Babel. Sukkot, your king, God, and Kiwan, your star god, the images you made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile to a land east of Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of heaven's armies. Who wants to preach that message to a bunch of church people? Who, who does this? A prophet who loves the church people and says, you've become too much like Babel. Come out of there. The day of the Lord's coming. Don't be a part of his warring. There's Micah does it. Isaiah does it. Isaiah is interesting because Isaiah, he, he tells them, he's like, the Lord hates all this stuff you're doing. Your, your church services he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He would that you would do well, that you would take care of the widows, the immigrants, the orphans, the poor. Later on in Isaiah, it's 60 through 63, the people are like, we're going to go on a fast. We're going to fast to gain the favor of the Lord back. And Isaiah, God speaks through Isaiah and says, is this my chosen fast? Okay, good. You've taken the food out of your mouth. You're still not putting it in the hands of the people who are hungry. And this is what he tells them. He says, no. If you will take care of the widows, the immigrants, the orphans, the poor, if you will be just, if you'll do what he did for you when you were in Egypt and do that for others, that's what his image does. He helps people who are crying out. This is why I'm not trying to vote in an answer to certain things in America. I'm supposed to go and serve people. That's what I'm supposed to do. Who's crying out right now? Who's crying out the loudest? Sinners. There's people that are confused and lost. I should be so separate from Babel that I can go and do a mission in Babel and pull them out and say, no, there's something far better out of here. And something far better is coming. And sometimes it'll be like Jonah prophesying to Gentiles. Guess what? They repented, church. It worked. He went in and he said, don't, Nineveh, please, don't be Babel 4.0. And they repented. 
an entire city. They even made the animals fast. So it works when prophets speak. Where the problem was is the Gentiles repented, but the Israelites didn't. The church people who were the ones struggling. Isaiah comes in. He tells them in Isaiah 1, 17, Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Isaiah 2, 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Isaiah 58, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with wicked fists. Fasting like this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Here's the, here's the premise of this. Don't act like Babel who deal with people hard in brick and mortar and abuse. We're the church. We're, we're an amazing bride preparing for a wedding day, but we're terrible moms. We don't know how to care for babies. We're just making sure we're looking good for the wedding day. God is, a, God is attracted to a mom that's been up all night dealing with a crying world. He's attracted to her. And that's what he's looking for. Nahum does this. Does this. Habakkuk does this. I'm, I can go through each of these. I'm not going to take any more time. I've gone far too long. But all of this leads to a God, a prophet, an apostle, an evangelist, a good shepherd, a teacher, rabbi, Jesus. He reads from a scroll in, a scroll in Isaiah and he says, I've come to set at liberty those which were bound, to deliver sight to the blind. He reads all this and he says, rejoice, because this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. I'm here. And Jesus goes to war. Watch this. The day, they said this, Brother Brown. They said that Jesus' coming was the day of the Lord. This is just one more, one more coin in the infinitely filled bucket of oneness scriptures. The day of the Lord was when God fought against something. And when Jesus showed up, they said it was the day of the Lord. So who do we think Jesus is? He's God. But notice what Jesus is doing. He's analyzing, he's looking, and he's finding the spirit of Babel behind people, manipulating them and working in them. And he looks at Matthew and he says, Oh, you're participating in a taxation system that is not kingdom. Leave the tax booths, Matthew. Come into a land that I will show you. Matthew immediately follows him. Notice that Jesus is, is he's collecting collectors. He finds some fishermen. He says, man, I, when I return, I don't, want, I don't want to find you buying and selling and, and just going about life as normal. Leave from that and be fishers of men. And one by one, they're just leaving their nets. They're dropping everything and immediately following him. This is good. This is what it looks like at times. This is the world. This is his kingdom. Let me leave that and follow. And so the day of the Lord comes and he says, watch what I'm going to do. There's a spirit working behind the Pharisees. I'm going to graciously preach to them for years. And I already, 
I already see the hardness of their heart, and I'm afraid I'm only going to win a few. Thankfully, there's a Nicodemus. Thankfully, there's a Joseph of Arimathea. There's hope for these religious folk. But the rest, I'm still going to preach to them. Even if I have to flip over some tables. I'll do whatever I have to do to reach these people because I've come to set everybody free. I hope they, I hope they listen. And then he goes and he says, yes, even the Samaritans. And the Jews were like, the Samaritans? You thought racism was just in our time? No, Samaritans were hated by Jews. And he says, yes, even the Samaritans. I'm going to reach them. I'm going to reach the Jews. I'm going to reach the, the Gentiles. I'm going to reach, yes, even Rome. Do you want to know where the first outpouring came out? Here, let me just, let me help you. It was a man who was blinded by sin and voted for Caesar. And water gushes out and he says, yes, the overflow is even for you. Would you obey? God poured out even on a centurion. Jesus walks amongst us and he says, right now I'm the advocate. I'm going to speak on your behalf. I'm going to pour out my blood on this generation and I'm going to pull you out of that Babel spirit. Would you listen to my words? Anyone who obeys my commands, I'll pull you into the kingdom. And he tells us in John 3 how to enter his kingdom. He tells us all throughout the gospels and the epistles how to stay in his kingdom. He tells us all of this stuff so graciously. He sends us Paul. He sends us Peter. He sends us James. He sends us all these amazing people. John, the prophet. And John would write in Revelation on what it would look like in the last hours. He says, Babylon's returning, guys. It's coming back. You're going to know we're in the end times when Babylon emerges out of the sea. The sea meant rebellion, by the way. Unsubmitted. You're going to see Babylon coming out of unsubmission. And so Jesus' initial coming was to war against the spirit that was working in us and to deliver us from it through his blood as a sacrifice. And you and I have been pulled into an opportunity to make a decision. Will I stay in darkness or will I walk in his marvelous light? Am I going to participate in Babylon? Well, remember, it's always separation. I mean, it's a theme from Genesis to Revelation Come out of them and be ye separate. Come out of that place, Abram. Come out, Matthew. Come out, John. I'm going to show you a promised land. And he works all this together. And then he leaves. But when he comes back, he's not coming back as our advocate. His first coming was to war against sin. His grace saw They're going to fail every time unless I give them a way out of this sin. By grace, we have a cross that we can cleave to. But when he comes back, he's warring against sinners. Not because he's mean. He's given us over 2,000 years to get this right. He is beyond patient. He's been loving. And he's looking throughout the earth right now. He says, where's the intercessors like Abraham that's going to go and intercede? I'm closing right here. Brother Brown, you know why I'm so passionate about this? I'm so passionate about this because I have my eyes set on a kingdom made not with human hands that God's been preparing for me. I have an almost four-year-old son waiting on me. 
And I've already mapped it out in my mind how this whole thing's going to look when he comes and pulls me out of this because I've been separate from the world. I have followed his plans. I've obeyed his commandments. This is not just something I want to do to be a good person, church. I cannot do anything else but this because I will not miss my son twice. I will not do it. Hearing my son crying for daddy in a burning house and me not being able to get to him, that's one too many. I will not look at him from a pearly gate and see him at a distance and the Lord say, depart from me. I will not miss him two times. I will do whatever that book says. I will let go of whatever that book says to let go of. I will do absolutely anything because I'm not going to miss two times. And so I've already mapped it out. You're going to have to get your own vision of heaven. But here's mine. I'm going to walk through pearly gates because of the blood of the Lamb. And according to Isaiah 14, we're going to look upon the man who caused all these problems in the nations. And we're going to look at him and say, he's been trampled down. And I'm not spending any time looking at the adversary. I'm not going to gloat because there's no pride in heaven. I'm going to look at him and I'm going to grab my family, all of us, and I'm going to walk to that adversary who's going to be locked away and I'm going to say, you thought you could destroy the Holloways when the blood was that powerful? You thought you were going to destroy the Holloway home when we were Bible nerds? No, the greatest mistake that ever happened was I made my mind up. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go hit my knees and I'm going to worship God. And the Bible said they're going to sing a new song. And I'm going to hit my knees in front of the one. And I'm going to say, God, be my judge. Judge me according to the word that I've been following. Lord, I'm not perfect, but thank you for giving me a word on telling me how to strive for it. And he's going to put on my head a crown of suffering. And I'm going to look at my four-year-old son and I'm going to say, Levi, Daddy never got to show you how to cast a fishing line. Today, though, here's what I, God gave me the blessed opportunity to do. I'm going to show you how to cast a crown. Why are we so bent on participating on things that the Lord's going to war against? The day of the Lord is coming, and we need to discern it. We need to separate ourselves, and we need to go on reconnaissance missions. Every time we get an opportunity, what God does when He provokes in you a spirit of intercession, He's putting on you a burden to pull somebody out. And every time you intercede, you are 100% successful every time because you brought God's spirit into the equation and you started delivering somebody from something. I don't know who was interceding for me and they probably don't even know they was interceding for me. But there was a night laying on the floor where I wanted to commit suicide and immediately the thought left. And I don't even know where it went, but God told me, he said, somebody was praying for you today. You have no idea who you're doing that for out here in this world. So what man? this is what Paul said. So if the day of the Lord is coming, what manner of lives should we live. Lift up your hands. This is what I want you to do. I want the burden of urgency to come upon you right now. Ye 
Somebody build an altar right now and exalt the name. Somebody build an altar and exalt his name. Somebody make some decisions. God's going to put on your heart some things to let go of. Just let go of it. Because God's going to put you in a position to intercede the way Abraham did for a nation. God is going to activate this church. I've been feeling it since Sunday. God is going to send people out. But to send you out, we have to have a true revelation of urgency. Everything that we're seeing around us in the world right now should be provoking the church provoking us, provoking us. God, I got to plant more. I got to reach more. I got to intercede more. I have to do more. I have to pray more. I have to separate myself because God, you're going to war against this world and I want to be on the right side of it. I feel the burden and the urgency has descended upon you. And I feel like you're going to be walking in it from here going forward. Now I want to be very clear and I want to transition to now your mission. And I'm going to zone in on this a lot, lot tighter tomorrow. I feel something different on me, a different anointing for tomorrow. But notice what's happening right here. All four Gospels depict Jesus' death with the day of the Lord images that we saw in the prophets. Darkness in Isaiah 13 and Joel 2. An earthquake, the temple. The authors of the Gospels are showing us something here. That when the cross happened, the day of the Lord happened. What was Jesus warring? What was he fighting? Colossians 2.13 tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put to open shame by triumphing over them. He's warring against rulers and principalities right here. The things that were warping us. and manip- He was warring against the spirit behind Babel, behind Pharaoh, behind all of these people. He's going to war against that. Here's the reality, though, that we need to reconcile. Just because the Lord defeated them doesn't mean he's locked them away yet. Evil is still in this world. It is still here. But here's what we need to get a revelation of. It's here, but it's defeated. It's defeated. So we need to live a triumphant life, not a defeated life. When you participate in the spirit of this world, you're living a defeated life. And he's going to lock away the defeated. Even the participants with the defeated. So how should we live and how do we reach this world who are participating with principalities, wickedness, and darkness. Romans 12 sums it up for us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You're not seeing much of this on the news, are you? Not even seeing much of this in the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, try to live peaceably with all. Sometimes you can't, but try to. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. He's going to take care of those people. 
it's, I don't have to take care of them. I have to preach to them the way Moses did. And so notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, don't go and preach straight to them. Moses did that. But notice Moses wasn't the one throwing the plagues. He was throwing the word. Speak the word. Speak the word. To the contrary, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you want to know how you disarm a principality? Well, how did Jesus do it? He went to a cross. Do you know how you disarm? Have you done this lately? You went to a gas station and you noticed that the person working behind the desk had a bad day and they were mistreating you. Do you know how to escalate that situation? Treat them bad. They're going to retaliate. You're going to retaliate. You're repaying evil with evil, and now it's turning into a fight. How many has experienced this before? Do you want to know how to disarm that person? When they mistreat you, smile at them and say, you're incredible. What's your name? You ask my wife. I make it a habit of doing this. I have a track record. I can make anybody who's had a bad day, I can turn it around most of the time. There's only one time I can recall where it didn't work. This person was just having a bad day, and I walked away heartbroken. I thought they must really be having a bad day. Disarm. I was dealing with somebody who had a tremendous amount of pride. You know what I did to disarm them? I threw myself under the bus. And I said, I said man, I said, I, I deal with a lot of pride. And I, I found that it stems from insecurity in myself. Do you know what this person who I discerned was dealing with pride did? After 10 minutes of me talking about my pride, they looked at me and they put their head down and they said, I know exactly what you're talking about. I have pride too. I laid hands on them. We prayed together. They began speaking in tongues. I was out fishing one day and there was a guy out there who I could tell was having a bad day. I put my fishing pole down. I was preaching at a church in Florida and I walked up to this gentleman and I could feel a principality. I could discern it. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. God didn't quite give me the word of knowledge yet because maybe God wanted me to go have a conversation with the man. If he had given me a word of knowledge, I would have just known his business and just kept on fishing. But I put my fish pole down and went and had a conversation with him. I said, hey, sir, how are you doing today? He said, oh, I'm doing pretty good. We shop talked for a minute, asked if I was catching anything. I said, no. And he said, uh, so what do you do for a living, son? And I love it when people ask me that. I said, I'm a preacher. And he said, oh, okay, I could tell something was different about you. That's what he told me. And I said, yes, sir, yes, sir. I said, God's really good to me. And he said, you know, I used to go to church, and I was really hurt. This man's opening up to me. We never met before. He said, I was really hurt at that church. And I said, my man, I said, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I said, I know I was hurt by the church too. I said, but I was also helped by the church. And I've under, I understand that there's bad people and good people in the church, and I'm not quitting the church over it. I said, but I'm so sorry. I don't, what happened? He started talking to me, and I said, would you mind if I prayed with you? He said, I'd love that. He took his ball cap off, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and we prayed right there. And he messed up. He messed up. He tried to outpray me. I started praying, and he prayed a little louder. And so I prayed louder than him. He prayed louder than me. So I outprayed him. He outprayed me. And we started getting louder and louder and louder. And I was like, I got one for you, bro. I started speaking in tongues. I was like, top that. <laughs> he did. He started praying in the spirit right there by a pond. God filled him with the Holy Ghost. And it all started with a conversation of disarming a principality of a church hurt. I didn't repay him evil for evil. Love started working. And then I drew a second line and I said, bro, I said, you need to find you a church 
You need to find you a pastor, and you need to go heal. In fact, let's go, let's go find one together. And you need to stop running from God. Two lines drawn. Love line, separation line. I don't want him to live in Babylon anymore. This is what we do as the church. When people are not unified, the church should get closer. When people are arguing, we should have conversations that are sensible. When people are warring, we should be propagating peace. And sometimes you have to war to have peace. Just keep it all in context. But if it's possible, if it's possible, disarm principalities. Somebody's been having a bad day. Don't get mad. Sinners sin. Imagine that. We don't. We, we're the church. He said, I'm going to leave an ecclesia here. Some called out people. Saints is what the Bible calls us. Holy ones. Who are going to go out there and they're going to disarm. They're going to carry with them crosses. And when they see a principality, they're going to stick that cross in the ground and they're going to hang from it. And they're going to disarm that neighbor of theirs. I have found that if somebody's dealing with a spirit, I can disarm it. And I'm going to preach about that tomorrow night. I am called to rule in this darkness. I am not afraid of what's going on in our world. I'm not afraid of the nation. In fact, I'll tell you this, and I want Pastor to close us out. We're in the greatest hour we've ever been in right now. The whole world believes in something they've never laid eyes on. That four-inch piece of cloth over their mouth tells me they believe in something they've never seen. What better hour have we ever been in to preach to them in the Spirit? Wow, you believe in a pandemic. That's great. You have faith. Let me preach to you something far more infectious but more life-giving that leads us unto peace, not warring. I think, that, I think they'll buy it. I really do because they're sick of the wars. They're sick of the hypocrisy. And when we tell them something better... I really think they're going to be convinced. I think, I know, we're going to have the greatest end-time harvest we've ever had. If we can get in position to disarm some principalities by loving the world and being separate from it and getting this urgency, the day of the Lord's coming, and I don't want anybody to stand before the judge without the advocate in their life. Preach this gospel with everyone.